Well, we've just sung of our need for the blood of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, a, a, day, a night like tonight, a service like this, it uh, really makes sense if you put it in context of uh, all of uh, time and who God is and what he is doing. And so to really understand the cross of Christ, we have to go back a little bit. And uh, to understand who Jesus is and to understand just our need for him, we have to understand the way that this world was created. And, uh, you know, we uh, know the story. It's more than a story. It is uh, the beginning of time, the beginning of mankind. But uh, God, when uh, he created, he made things good. And uh, when he looked upon it, he said, it is good. And then he formed the earth, he formed the animals, he formed everything. And then he formed man and he formed woman and he put them in the garden. And here we have this image of what it was very good. And so this is how we were created. This is the state that we were created to be in, is uh, in this relationship, in this, um, uh, in this uh, uh, fellowship with our creator, God. Now, I'm guessing it looked a little more pretty than this, but this is kind of an artist's rendition of, of what that is. Thank, so thankful for that bush that's hanging out there. But, um, you know, this was, it was, even that, you know, I mean, it, it was a sign of, of the perfection, uh, even the nakedness of uh, Adam and Eve. There was nothing to hide because it was all very, very good, but it didn't last very long. There was some specific instruction given to uh, Adam and Eve, and they were told not to eat of a certain tree. And uh, after some time, they chose to disobey, and they did. And this is the place and time when uh, sin entered into uh, the world. And everything that was created good, everything that was made right was now broken. And this relationship with the creator God, uh, who was... um, good and kind and loving and righteous, was not able to be in relationship with mankind in the same way because sin had now separated and broken that relationship. And we see something really peculiar that happens. Um, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. He removes them from this perfect place which he had put them in. And it talks about this in Genesis Uh, Chapter 3 in verse 22, we'll put it here on the screen. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we have in this garden, this this cherubim placed here as uh, a barrier, as uh, uh, guardians for uh, what was the original garden state, right? They, They wanted to, if they wanted to come back, they were not allowed there. And this is the first time we are introduced to this, this character cherubim. We're gonna see this show up a couple more times. Um, because uh, God uh, wants to reestablish a relationship with mankind. So we're going to fast forward just a little bit. But what happens is, is God uh, begins to um, 
uh, form this relationship with a specific person, and it's going to become a group of people, and he's going to reestablish this, this relationship with mankind. He wants to do something special uh, with someone. And so what he does is he, um, he reaches out, and he begins to call to himself this people. And he calls them to himself, and he gives them instruction. He gives them law. He reveals who he is. He shows them his character. He shows them himself. He starts to cultivate this relationship. But because of sin now entering into the equation, now this relationship has, is not free like it was before. Now it has some very specific rules and regulations and ways that this needs to happen. But he wants to be close to people. He wants to have this relationship again. And so he creates and puts in place a way for this to happen. And the way that it happens is at the tabernacle. This is the place where God's presence is seen, where his glory is experienced, where he comes down and he meets with his people. 2 Chronicles 3.10 says this, In the most holy place he placed two cherubim of wood, and laid over them with gold the wings of the cherubim together extended 20 cubits one wing of the one and of five cubits touched the wall of the house and the other wing of the five cubits touched the wing of the other cherub and of this cherub one wing of five cubits touched the wall of the house and the other wing of this also five cubits was joined to the wing of the first cherub and the wings of those cherub extended 20 cubits and now the cherubim stood on their feet facing the nave and he made the veil and of purple and blue and crimson fabrics and fine linen, and he worked the cherubim on it. And so here we have this, this image of this. It began as a tabernacle. It started in a tent. Eventually, uh, a temple was built. Now there was a place where the people would come and they would meet with God. And what was described here is, once again, we see the cherubim showing up again. What are they doing? They're defending. They're guarding the presence to the holy of holies. We see this, this separation. There was this veil, this curtain that was placed between the, the most holy place where God's glory was. In this place, there was a special item, a special element that was uh, put here. It was an ark. And above the ark were two cherubim, and, and there on that ark was the mercy seat. And what happens is, is this is the place of God's presence and his glory, and it was where he drew near to his people. But it was only through blood that the people were able to draw near to him. Hebrews 9, 1 through 5 says this, now even when the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there was a lampstand and a table and the bread of presence, and it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of Covenant covered on all sides in gold, in which there was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so here we have this picture of the ark, God's presence, and this is how God had set up for man to be able to meet with him. And so you have here the holy place beyond this curtain would have been the most holy place. And once a year, and only once a year, the high priest would go through this ritual of consecrating himself and purifying himself, and he would sacrifice an animal, and he would um, sprinkle the blood, and he would put it on himself, and then he would go into the most holy of places 
only after it was filled with incense so that his eyes did not set upon that mercy seat. He would fill the place with incense and he would offer the blood of a bull on behalf of the people of Israel. This is called Yom Kippur. It was the day of atonement. This is the place where the whole sacrificial system that was put in place, there's lots of sacrifices being made at the, table, or at the temple throughout the year. But this was the one day when they would enter the Holy of Holies and the whole system was sort of reset. All of the inconsequential, unknown, unrecognized, unrepented sin was expressed here. And God, in his forgiveness, in his kindness, in his mercy, chose to look upon it and he counted the blood of that bull on behalf of the people. And then the next year, they would have to do the same thing all over again. And the next year, all over again. And the next year, all over again. This went on for thousands of years. You see, this is so helpful for us. I mean, it's the year 2023. We don't do sacrifice in this way, right? This, isn't, this is kind of a foreign concept to us. But you have to understand the scene in which Jesus showed up was a time and a place where this is how the people of God were interacting with him. Every year, more blood. Every year, more animals. Every year, all of the uh, rituals, all of the carefulness, all of the everything to the T, everything followed to directly what it had done. And Hebrews 9, 6 and 7 says, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. He goes once a year, not without taking blood, for he offers himself for the unintentional sins of the people. See, here we understand that therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled with both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It would have been quite the sight to be at the temple. I think we often like to think about church or we like to think about meeting with God as this clean and sort of you know, pleasant place, but it would have been uh, quite a scene to, 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 to put your eyes upon. Just next to the temple, even today, it's called the Dung Gate. The reason it's called the Dung Gate is because this is the place where all of the, uh, all the extras, right, everything that was kind of left over was taken out of the city and it was cast aside. But, but there was this picture of the blood that was needed to wash over and to take on the penalty and the payment of the people. And this is where Jesus referred to by John the Baptist uh, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the scene in which he steps into. Do you know that Bethlehem, you can stand on a hill in Jerusalem and you can look over and you can see Bethlehem. It's not that far away. And when you look upon Bethlehem, you get a sense of just how close that was. Do you know what happens in Bethlehem? Do you know what, uh, what people do in Bethlehem? Well, we know the story of Jesus' birth, right? Who were the first people that greeted Jesus on that day when he was born? It was shepherds, right? They were nearby. They were outside. They were in the fields watching over their flock by night. Their flocks probably were special flocks. 
Do you know that their flocks served a special purpose? The flocks of Bethlehem, that was kind of the, the fields, the pastures that were closest to the temple. There's a good chance that those shepherds were raising lambs that were going to be used for Passover, that were going to be sacrificed at the temple. And this is the place where Jesus is born. Are you seeing the, the kind of picture that, that God is putting together for his people? This is the place where Jesus was born. It's the very place that these lambs are being raised for slaughter, to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And then Jesus, he lives this sinless, perfect life without blemish. According to the law, he was perfect. There was no reason that he was worthy of his own death, yet he was falsely accused rushed through a speedy trial with false witnesses and then sentenced to death on a Roman cross. This was the death that you and I deserve. This is the death that mankind deserves. This is the death that he took on himself. He went to the cross for us. Mark records it for us in 15, verses 33, beginning in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For some of the bystanders heard it and said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. They didn't understand what he was saying. They were having a hard time understanding the words that he was expressing. They thought he was crying to the prophet Elijah. But then someone grabbed a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That moment of Christ's death, something happened which had never happened before. That veil that separated the presence of God from mankind that veil that kept the holy of holies pure and undefiled, except for that one day a year, right, when the high priest would go in and would offer a sacrifice, that veil which had the cherubim standing guard, right, protecting, reminding, you're not allowed in here. You don't have the relationship that you once did. That veil on the day at the moment of Christ's death was torn. And what did it say? It said it was torn from top to bottom. You have to understand, this was no like small curtain, okay? This thing was big, it was thick, it was heavy. It stood over 60 feet high, it was uh, 30 feet wide. It, was, it took more than 300 priests to assemble and to put it up into place. This isn't something that man could have done. What's God doing at that moment? He's trying to communicate something to his people. He's now saying that the holy of holies, the place where my presence is, is now open for 
you. And so in that moment, Jesus does something. He now walks into the Holy of Holies and he does what that high priest has done for centuries. He offers blood for the sins of the people. But not just any blood, not the blood of a perfect bull, not the blood of a lamb. He offers his blood, the Son of God. Hebrews 9, 11 says this, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, when through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If God was willing to receive for the forgiveness of sin the blood of mere animals, right? Goats, bulls, things that he created, how much more? How much more would he receive the blood of his son, the eternal son of God? You see, when Jesus walked into the Holy of Holies, he sacrificed for the last time the sacrifice that needed to be made for the sins of the people. And so here we are, some 2,000 years later, living in the aftermath of that eternal action. We talked this, more, this, this evening about these colors of the gospel, right? Because of our sinful choices, not just the sinful choices of our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, right? Our sinful choices, our hearts are marred by sin. We are separated. We are covered over by the darkness that is sin. It separates us from our eternal and loving, righteous Heavenly Father. The only way that this sin is paid for, is forgiven, is washed away, the only way that you and I are made white is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you see how amazing it was that Jesus did on the cross that day? He shed his blood for you. His body was broken for you that you would have a restored and a right and a renewed relationship with your creator God, your heavenly and eternal father, that we would never need to sacrifice again in that way. And so church, tonight we're here and we're worshiping our loving, gracious savior, Jesus Christ. Blood was needed because there is life in the blood. Jesus gave up his life so that his blood could be shed and poured out for you and me. And it wasn't easy. He cries out, right? We read it. When he cried out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, do you understand what was happening? All the sins of the world 
your sins, my sins, the sins we've committed, the sins that we're committing even today, the sins that we're going to commit, we're all being placed on Jesus in that moment. As God the Father looked down on his son, he saw for the first time the sin, the iniquity of the world laid upon him. And it separated the Father and the Son from each other. Do you know that it's Jewish tradition when you lose a loved one, especially a father of a son, you, you tear your garment in a sign of mourning. You know, I think God was trying to tell us a couple things when he tore that veil. I think for sure, because Hebrews tells us, he was trying to show us that the way into the Holy of Holies was now open because of the blood of Jesus. But I also think there was something else going on at that moment. You see, for you and I, I don't know that we've torn our garments, our clothes, but in that moment, from top to bottom, you see that veil being torn as if the, the heavenly father is mourning over the death of his son. It was, listen, the gift that comes through Jesus Christ is a free gift, but it is costly to him. He gave up his only son for us. Who are we that we would deserve such love? We're the ones who sinned. We're the ones who ran from him, yet he chased after us and he gave us his only son. Why would he do that? Because he is a righteous holy God, but he's also a loving God. It was the only way that that sin could be paid for and he could show his perfect love for us. And so listen, church, we have but to receive the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus through the cross. I'm gonna invite the team to come back up and what we wanna do is we want to continue to think and to Remember and to process what it means that Jesus died for us. What does it mean that Christ died for you? What does it mean that Christ died for me? And so what we're going to do as, the, as we hear this song about the blood of Jesus is we're going to take some actions that I think will help to remind us of this tonight. Up here at the edge of the stage, there's these stickers and I'm going to invite you, if you so choose, as a way to think about the way that our sin was laid on the cross of Christ, on him there. I would encourage you to, whenever you're ready, to come up and to take a sticker, and there's a marker, and to write down why Jesus went to the cross. If you want to write down a sin, you can. If you want to write down a few sins, you can. If you just want to put your name down, that's fine too. But I would encourage you to take that name take that sticker and then place it there on the cross. Then after you do that, I would invite you to move to one of these two sides. There's gonna be a couple at each side with the elements of communion. After placing your sin upon the cross of Christ, I want to invite you to then take communion, the symbol that Jesus gave us, to remember that his blood was poured out for that sin. His blood was poured out for you. So listen, listen, we are blackened by our sin, but we are 
in Christ, covered by his blood. Would this be a reminder for us? Would you do that? Again, it's going to take a little bit of time. You don't have to rush up here. I'd encourage you, if you want to sit there in prayer for a second, you certainly can. But we're going to have some time here to just do this together. And this will be a visual picture for us of the way that our sin placed on this cross. You can just place it anywhere on that front side. And we're going to remember and contemplate and think about what Christ has done on our behalf.